Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means. We explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Melissa Parrish, VP and Research Director at Forrester, to discuss the continued strain to and the transformation of the media market. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So, Melissa, we constantly see sort of this, this reinvention within the media market, the publishers and agencies, and we've seen it sort of you know, every couple of years where they where they look to innovate or optimize their businesses. And it seems to me the difference today is that reinvention is not on their terms, but on others' terms. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. And these reinventions are being forced by a variety of players uh, in the marketplace and in the ecosystem. There is, of course, the impending legislation from across the world, the GDPR, which we're all talking about. Uh, on the agency front, there are uh, increasing demands from marketers for things like transparency and uh, a better understanding of not just ROI, but even things um, as sort of uh, comparatively obvious as fees. Uh, and then, of course, continuing on the, the agency front, you have entrance into their market coming from directions that uh, that many of them didn't see coming. Uh, and then you have the ever-present uh, empowered customer, this uh, this entity that is who everyone wants to reach and has completely tipped the scales of power uh, in the last 10 years or so. Um, they have demands. They want to be treated with respect. They are understanding what they what their privacy means to them and how valuable they are to companies, and they are making their voices heard. So I do think it's fair that we are in an era of disruption, and it is coming from outside forces. So, Melissa, why don't we break this down a little bit? Because some of them appear to be disruptions that could be seen on the horizon for a while. You can sort of make the argument that the agencies should have seen it coming. They may not have known the exact timing or the exact nature of the impact. And I'll start with a fundamental issue of transparency and fees, something that has been at their door for quite a while now. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think the the hubbub about it has only sort of reared its head in the last couple of years. And I would argue that the reason was marketers didn't really know what they should be looking for uh, in terms of not just agency remuneration, but also uh, places where they may, might be losing efficiency. It, it takes a while for, for these sorts of things to come to the fore. And then once they do, you have organizations like the 4As and the ANA talking about it. Well, then it, it just it snowballs and you can't sort of get away from it. I would not be one to say that uh, the the opacity of the fee structure uh, was in any sort of way like intended to uh, you know be malicious. I think there are some people who who have made that argument, and, and that's not what I think. I think you know you, we entered uh, an era of of digital advertising and then programmatic advertising. We were all learning what the business is supposed to be like. The agencies were learning how to make money in that model, and the marketers were learning how to buy media in that model. It's just that once news hits that marketers are paying for things they don't know they're paying for, uh, that that takes off pretty quickly. And so I do think that uh, it could have been anticipated, uh, but it happened. The the hubbub happened so quickly because it was the the headlines were pretty extraordinary. I think. I think ad tech un, undoubtedly was extraordinarily complex. Just the, a number of startups telling their own stories. Some some odd levels of segmentation that marketers had no opportunity to really understand. 
and you tie that in with hypermeasurement, and you have two things that operate in opposing forces. One is I can see things now at a very detailed level, but I have no idea what I'm looking at. Um, ultimately, that has to come to some equation that argues that there's inherent market inefficiencies, meaning I'm paying too much to get too little. Definitely. I think for a very long time, digital, whether programmatic or otherwise, uh, was all about measuring stuff because we can measure it. So here's a spreadsheet with all of these numbers. Well, look at that. I can collect numbers. And we get so excited about the fact that in digital, we can see numbers of things uh, that it took us a while to stop and consider what, as you said, what the numbers actually meant. What, what is this showing me? Um, and ultimately, uh, as, as digital direct response became uh, quite uh, accountable to end results, to business metrics and sales, the rest of digital uh, had to follow. And so I think advertisers and their agencies started asking this question. We're looking at all of these numbers because we can. What does it mean? Are we, we know we're showing you that you can buy against audiences instead of just against individual pieces of content. And we can show you that that gains some kinds of efficiency. Your CPM is getting uh, more reasonable, for example. You have more control because of real-time bidding. And then finally, the, the question was, okay, but is CPM the key performance indicator? Is that telling me something about my business? And the answer is, of course, no. Uh, and so now, uh, over the last year, there has been a real movement back to the drawing board to say, what numbers do we need to collect? What, what is all of this counting telling me about the state of my business? Because that's what I want to spend against. And that has really thrown a curveball uh, because of the systems and the strategies were not set up to support that from day one. Yeah, and you can see that overall sense of accountability coming because the CMO was anchored towards sort of customer acquisition leads. And now if you look at the CMO's remit, it goes to the overall performance of the business, which is can I acquire the customers? Can I deliver experiences that keeps them, enriches them? So media has to participate in that calculus and it has to be measured against that calculus. So it's, put, it's placed against a harder set of measures that it hasn't been placed against before. That is exactly right. And I think it becomes even more complex uh, in businesses that are looking across the customer life cycle or the customer journey, where media has to play a role uh, in uh, helping the customer get what he or she needs wherever they happen to be. So then it isn't even just, okay, can we draw a direct line between my media buy and a sale, uh, which I think a lot of marketers overcorrected for. Now it's what proportion of the relationship or the customer lifetime value can be attributed to my media spend. And that is quite complicated to get to. Isn't there a question, too, here where we're talking about transparency, the lack of visibility into how that money was spent or well spent? Did that consumer view that ad and the impact of that ad? Um, and so, so much budget essentially was wasted, too. 
So that was definitely the issue from 2016 into 2017. We calculated about $7.5 billion being totally wasted um, from marketers uh, in that, that time period to things like fraud and a lack of viewable impressions. Uh, what has happened is, again, a, a, a bit of an overcorrection in some circles, where suddenly viewability becomes the KPI. Well, viewability is not is not a, a key performance indicator. A minimum amount of viewability is what you need. Like that right. isn't that doesn't tell you anything about the business. It just tells you that you're not advertising to no one. That's like a ticket to the dance kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, you know, hooray! I'm not spending money to advertise into a void. Like that's not exactly a, a key performance indicator. Um, and I think the the understanding of these issues in the ecosystem really came to a head last year. So we are seeing a lot of that opacity be cleared up, which is great, both through organizations that are, are taking a sort of a strategic view of this and trying to set benchmarks and, and standards, and also through the technology. Really, there is no ad tech player who is not thinking about this. They absolutely have to, and strides have been made uh, and will continue to be made in the next year, for sure. So one of the byproducts of, of spending in a space that's complex, opaque, areas where I know I'm wasting money is you try to seize control. So one of the dynamics affecting the media is that you have firms that are bringing programmatic in-house, um, which is essentially sort of taking what I used to outsource and just insource it. I mean, it's disruptive to the agencies, the agency trading desks, and it really changes sort of who's in control of the buy. How much is that affecting the media market? I would say it's not affecting the media market in a huge way today as we have this conversation, uh, but it will continue to be a much bigger force. We are seeing some very large advertisers like P&G, uh, L'Oreal and others. Sprint is another one. Um, there are a couple of financial services companies who uh, wish not to be mentioned that are thinking about this who are starting the processes. Now, uh, a couple of the brands that I mentioned have been doing uh, have been working on this for a few years, so they're a little bit further along. But the the key thing, I think, for, for agencies and other service providers, there are a lot of uh, ad tech players who sell directly to uh, advertisers who also offer managed services. The thing for them to know is that this is not the kind of strategy where a CMO wakes up one day and says, oh, we're bringing it in-house, and then six months later it's all in-house. Uh, there is a lot of training required. There is a lot of organizational and strategic work that has to happen, uh, let alone the sort of training on the systems themselves. What What is the DSP I'm going to use and how do I do that and um, the complexities of, the, of that system. And so we are seeing a lot of uh, collaboration and cooperation between the advertisers and the agencies. Uh, so one thing we expect to see happen as this movement becomes a little bit more robust, is that the agencies will actually be offering services um, to help their clients bring uh, programmatic in-house. It's a little counterintuitive, of course, because it is the agencies offering services to help offload their own services. Um, but it will be absolutely necessary for the advertisers who want to do this. And it will help create even more of a system of trust between the advertiser and the agency. The agency's self-cannibalizing makes sense because one of the dynamics affecting them is the, the management houses, management consultant houses that have come into the marketplace. And if the agencies don't con construct those capabilities, certainly 
the management consultant houses will. And so you really would want to do that on your own timing and pace and maybe benefit long-term from a different kind of relationship, maybe more of a creative relationship with the CMO and their team versus the management houses actually displacing you all in under the wedge of, I'll help you move to programmatic. Yeah, it is, I think, a requirement uh, going forward for agencies to sort of uh, double down and refocus on creative. It is the thing that the management consultancies and systems integrators do not currently offer. And it is certainly the kind of thing that uh, brands would be quite surprised to see them offer. When you think about why agencies are, are getting this sort of competition from these players, this was somewhat foreseeable, although the particular acquisitions were maybe not. The companies that are well known for helping uh, companies pivot at a high corporate strategic level and do that in a way that is supported by technology, it was sort of a natural outgrowth that they would get into technology data-driven marketing. But agencies still own the creative here uh, in terms of talent and expertise. That is not something that is going to be completely replaced by technology anytime soon. So we've gone from the things that one could see on the horizon to something that has come up and sort of been the, the shotgun across the bow, which is Amazon. I'll just read some stats just for context. So we expect Amazon to, to earn 3.3% of display revenue in a couple of years, 31% of search and 50% of e-commerce. I mean, you're talking about a giant and and less about the numbers, but more about now the data. You're talking about a single entity that owns all the transaction and behavioral data of customers that is just invaluable to advertisers. I mean, Amazon has gone from being a powerful e-commerce engine to sort of the place to go for advertisers. That has got to be disruptive to the agency and the, the advertising market. It is completely disruptive to uh, not just the the agency market, but the ad tech market, and then, of course, the the advertising duopoly of of Facebook and Google, uh, because it is about the data. Uh, That's the thing that I think uh, sometimes gets gets lost a little bit in the conversation, and and one of the reasons that I think Amazon has been considered a dark horse, if you will, because they have ad tech. It's not the most brilliant demand-side platform you've ever seen. It's not the most technically impressive audience management software, if that's what you're looking for. But that doesn't matter. The, the, the technology they offer is good enough because it gives you access to the data that you can use to create uh, contextually relevant uh, ads and segments that, that you just can't do in any of those other platforms that I mentioned, because Amazon's the only one who has that kind of data. So it is, again, it's one of those things that could maybe have been foreseeable if the conversation had been about uh, the contextual relevance of advertising or the uh, the incredible benefits of targeting in the right way or accessing just the right data. But instead, we spent all of this time talking about the technology platforms themselves. Yeah, and there's a concept of data as currency being about upside, but if you're a demand-side platform in the ad tech space or you're a, a platform like Google whose search revenue is expected to turn flat, I mean, this is really about fundamental redistribution of value in the marketplace to those that actually have the data. And we haven't even had the conversation yet about what does Alexa do on top of the Amazon platform or some of the conversations that Alexa will have with the consumers will be hidden from the brands themselves. I mean, that just adds to this phenomenon. 
It does. The, so, you know, we started this conversation talking about opacity and transparency. And one of the, the aspects of this that uh, you can sort of never get away from when you're talking about media uh, is the question of who owns the data. And beyond who owns it, uh, who is able to, to see it, even if you don't own it? This is a, a perennial uh, complaint about Facebook, uh, although, you know, with all of the complaining about it, uh, we sure do put enough money into the platform. So maybe it isn't as big of a deal as sometimes it is made out to sound. But yeah, I think we are entering an era in which uh, there are other entities that know way more about our customers than we do. Uh, And the question to me becomes, um, is there anything we can do about it? And if there is, should we? So in the case of Amazon, the data that they have that the brand might not have, I think is is, um, quite important for the brand to to have some sense of, because this is purchase and browsing behavior. Uh, This is about intent and demand. Uh, This is very much about the customer life cycle. Do they know who you are? Are they exploring what you offer? Have they bought it already? Are they repurchasing? So to me, that kind of data is something that marketers should very much want to be able to at least see if they can't own in the other walled gardens, it's a different kind of data. Uh, I often say, does my toothpaste brand need to know what size shoe I wear? You know, I, I would hope not. Um, but that's the kind of data that is, is in all these other sorts of places that I just don't necessarily think is all that important to every single marketer. So, Melissa, speaking of data and data collection, GDPR. So, Jen, what is GDPR? It's the European General Data Protection Regulation, Victor. That regulation is putting more and more pressure on the ad ecosystem from the advertiser to the ad tech vendor, and I'm assuming everybody in between, or publishers. How is that playing out, or how do you see that playing out, particularly in 2018? Uh, the short answer is not well. Um, I think, uh, you know, saying that it's, that it's putting pressure on the ecosystem is, is quite kind of you. I think it is, uh, it, it has the potential to be fairly devastating when combined with the e-privacy uh, regulation. The GDPR is, um, it's pretty strict as written. And I think the thing that distinguishes it best from e-privacy is that the GDPR at least has this notion of legitimate interest built in. So all of this data that we've been talking about, the GDPR basically says, yay, I'm really happy for you that you've been able to collect all of that data. But can you prove that you have consent? And can you prove that, uh, that you have a legitimate interest in collecting and using it? You have to have sort of both of those things to different degrees, depending on where you are in the in the ecosystem. And every member of the ecosystem is responsible for it. So the advertiser, the agency, the technology vendors, everybody, there is no one who who escapes uh, responsibility for making sure they are compliant. But that's what throws me because this this ad tech ecosystem hasn't been a black market for data, but it's been kind of an umbral market. I mean, it's unclear how good the data is, how they collect it, on what terms they collect it, who they sell it to, how they use it. I mean, this has been a market relatively hidden from the consumer. And you brought up earlier about the sort of the role of the empowered customer in this play. And to me, one of the things that GDPR kind of gets right, even though it's very onerous, is that this market that has been hidden to them, that's moves identity information about them around the room, brings it to the fore and holds to account this ecosystem. This is this this feels to me very jarring. 
It is very jarring. And I, I am actually pretty concerned about how jarring it will be for customers because some of the language that is currently recommended uh, for, for advertisers, platform owners, and publishers to use to collect consent in, in an effort to be very clear, I think is is actually in some ways more confusing because it uses language, you know, like this is not an exact quote, but, you know, uh, I, do you give consent for your browsing behaviors to be tracked for the purposes of advertising? I mean, that sounds like that does sound very Big Brother is watching, which, of course, is 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 the way some people might feel about it, but is not actually how it works. So I, I, I am quite concerned at the consumer reaction because while it may be quite severe, they might be misled in terms of what it actually means. Um, and the e-privacy regulations are, are much worse because legitimate interest goes away. It is almost entirely about consent and consent for cookies at the browser level. So imagine you've gotten a new computer you powered up for the first time, uh, you go to uh, log on to Chrome and you want all your settings to come over and you get a big pop-up with this huge menu that's like, you know, do you opt into any first-party cookies, any third-party cookies? Oh, what are third-party cookies? And then you read this thing that's very um, stark about what third-party cookies are and you, you are almost certain to turn them off. And so it, it potentially makes everything else we've said in this conversation almost totally moot, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, devastating. Yeah, certainly companies will go out of business. And one thing that strikes me on GDPR is the regulator is self-funded, which is it will live off its fines. And there's at least two very attractive targets in the U.S. And you've got to think that in 2018, those two targets are going to be on the watch list of GDPR because, one, it's a symbolic exercise. They have to prove their legitimacy and their power. You could argue GDPR was set up in some part to confront the, the U.S.'s advantage in a big media space. And here, this, here's folks with deep pockets who can certainly provide a whole lot of funding. Yeah, I, I think that is an apt observation. I think, you know, for all of the, the talk, myself included, about how devastating this could be, there are things that advertisers can, should, and are doing right now to get their houses in order. The ad tech e- ecosystem is doing everything they can to clean things up. Uh, there will be plenty of companies that are fine come May 2018 because they have spent the last year and a half preparing. But those two big American companies, uh, Facebook yeah, and Google, Facebook <laughs> and Google, they are, um, you know, they, they could certainly be at risk. Now, look, if you're if you're if you're concerned about them having the, the right sort of lobbying power to make their voices heard, I don't think we have to worry about that part. Um, but you're right. It is self-funded. And the, the fines that can be levied are up to four percent of the of the annual turnover based on the previous year's filings. So, like this, this is we're talking about like billions of potential dollars uh, from finding those two companies alone. So we sit here in 2017 and we're talking about a significant amount of change affecting the media market. But this isn't sort of new to them. We saw digital come to the fore and then we saw mobile come to the fore. And they were both somewhat disruptive to them, but in a kind of linear way, which is regardless of what happened, they were still able to run their businesses relatively their own way. Even when programmatic came to the fore, they were still able to do that in their own way. I think what's different about these dynamics is that they're, they're exogenous to the media market and they're ch- forcing them to make structural change, not simply sort of add a channel, if you will, or add the way you manage that channel. 
the only thing I would add is, is actually something that you, you said in the question anyway, which is that, you know, you can add more media channels. That, that isn't disruption. That's just innovation. Uh, it's the same uh, essential service they have offered. They just have to, you know, figure out how to make sure their technology uh, is up to the task, and they have to make sure that, that pricing models are aligned. But what's happening now is, is as you said, it's totally outside of, of, like, media buying. It is, like, the universe changing around them. So that's a much bigger sort of disruption than just an, an innovation in media channels. But let's not forget that when we're talking about these external forces and what they are forcing the agencies to do, this is, this is much more like a sea change than a small innovation that is required. And when we're talking about these agencies, we're talking about massive holding companies. There are, of course, you know, hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands of small independent agencies out there. But for the most part, we're talking about these enormous global conglomerates with, in, in many cases, hundreds of sub-agencies under them. So turning that ship, completely reinventing how they work together you know, within their own sister brands is a much bigger deal than making sure they can support a new media channel. You know, the media market is a, is a two-sided coin. It deals with the advertisers and agencies, but in the same breath, the publishers aren't immune to these dynamics happening to them, whether you think of it from the standpoint of ads, ad safety, data, and other things. So let's turn our attention over to the publisher's market, Melissa. And in your mind, what are the big dynamics affecting them? I think the biggest thing is finding an equilibrium between ad-supported business and subscription business. Uh, and that, that is a bit of an oversimplification, of course, because we see, uh, you know, who the players are in the publishing space have, have been changing quite rapidly. Your ISP uh, is also your phone provider, is also your cable provider, is also creating content and acquiring content creators. So it is, it is a very uh, complex ecosystem now. But at the end of the day, this move towards a la carte services uh, has been quite empowering for customers. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're reaching a fever pitch where they are being asked to pay a few bucks a month for this and a few bucks a month for that. Uh, and you can have these bundled services, but not those bundled services. And I think at some point in the near future, consumers are just going to have enough. They're going to say, look, this, originally I was excited about unbundling because I could save money. And now the opposite is going to be true. Uh, if you were upset about a $150 a month cable bill, but now you are subscribing to 15 independent um, uh, services all for 10 bucks a month, well, you're right back there anyway, and you might still be missing some of the core channels. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like simplicity was sort of thrown on the, on the shoals of cord cutting where I didn't like the bill from the cable company. I cut the cord, and then I assumed that all the services from the cable company were suspect, and I went after them one by one. The cable company actually provided a service of aggregating and simplifying my relationship with these different programmers. They, they then took the next step of having the consumer be sort of the general contractor for this and do the integration and aggregation. Yeah, having, I think what you're saying is that's Having too many choices job. is just not, not what people want at the end of the day. Yeah, it's been interesting, the publishers, because you've gone through the destruction of value from print to digital and the theory that all digital is bad to sort of this reconstruction of value where all the publishers like Disney want to build their own channel because they see from a vertical integrated standpoint that having your own programming and your own distribution is extremely valuable. 
Yeah, and this is where this is where the power of a media brand, I think, will have a massive impact. Because originally, I think to some extent, it was about novelty. Uh, Netflix was first. Uh, Amazon started, uh, you know, developing their own content, and that was still pretty unique and kind of cool. Um, and now you've got uh, all of the other OTT services, whether it's an app or, or an actual physical device, um, trying to do the same thing. And so now I think it will very largely come down to things like Disney. I, I cannot really predict that Disney would suffer uh, in trying to offer their uh, their streaming service a la carte. But what about some of the other smaller brands? Um, we talked internally about Acorn, uh, which is a, a British um, service that, that has a lot of cool uh, British television shows. Uh, I know of it, uh, but most of the people in the New York office at Forrester have never heard of it before. So I think now you're going to see some sort of brand fundamentals coming into play for the publisher side of the house. Do you have a strong brand? Do, do consumers already love the content you're providing? Um, or are you... A, a bit of an unknown, um, then you have to go back to those classic media strategies of trying to do something really bold and win awards so that you get press so that people know who you are. It's sort of, you know, you start with this big wave of, of uh, transformation and innovation in the ecosystem, and suddenly you're right back to, uh, to classic fundamentals. And if you're a customer, on the other side of that, you're seeing more and more noise form you spent several years working hard to avoid ads. And to your point, I'm now spending time trying to avoid all the subscription costs. I'm sort of stuck between a different form of value-to-value exchange. I may be more willing to go back into an ad-supported model if they handle it right against the rules we talked about earlier in this discussion. And it's economically, I still have a better relationship with all the different OTT providers that I, that I have. Yeah, and I think the the other piece of the pie here that we haven't talked about yet is the importance of quality. So I think uh, in the the uh, equation that you just talked about, um, I think there are many consumers who will opt for ad supported media so that they don't have to continue to pay, um, you know, everybody and their brother for uh, individual subscriptions. We saw that happen uh, with with Hulu, who sort of pioneered the the multiple tiers. But what that means is. Uh, you have to consider the what the customer attitudes are telling us. We know from our own data that the many, many consumers, the majority, depending on, on uh, which channel you're asking about, will say they don't like advertising or they avoid advertising or they block advertising in some cases. But if they are willing to consume advertising or to at least have a, a media model that is ad-supported, you may find that they start paying attention because they are seeing less advertising overall. So now the advertisers have an opportunity to offer something really quality to the consumers who are, who are in a sense, opting in to seeing those ads. One of the quirkier outcomes of this and sort of the consumer playing integrator or aggregator is the new role of the TV antenna or the rabbit ears. For those of us old enough to have held them for our parents in awkward positions so they can get channel 25 just perfectly. I wish um, the audience could see the grin on your face right yeah, now. Yeah, so, so I went through this and, and it struck me that, of course, if you, if you get some of these over-the-top providers, you're not getting local TV and getting local TV may bring me back into the place I wanted to leave, which was the cable company. And so in pops these metal devices. Is that happening? 
It is. It is happening. Uh, it is happening in a measurable way. We saw ante- antenna sales grow 9% per year uh, in the past couple of years. And it is for exactly the use case you described. You can cut the cord with your cable provider and you can have all these other cool services, but you don't get your local stations unless you've got that antenna. Uh, and so absolutely, those uh, those TV antenna sales are, are increasing uh, because there is still a lot of value to be had from local content providers, for sure. So, Melissa, we're in the midst of the holiday period, which is typically a moment of celebration for the media market. This is where they earn their keep. But in this podcast, we've talked a lot of in, about inputs to this market that are hard to deal with, you know, ranging from regulations like GDPR, the increased role of Amazon, the inclusion of management houses into this marketplace. There's a lot for advertisers, agencies, and publishers to cope with. So as you look at 2018 and even out to 2019, what does it mean to them in terms of making sure that this market stays healthy and vibrant? I think it's two things. One is that we must resist the urge to be paralyzed by fear. Things are going to be okay. We just have to put things in place today to make sure that we are compliant and serving our customers. That needs to be our North Star going forward. We can't allow ourselves to do nothing because we're so scared of the things we have to do. And the other thing I think that is sort of an overarching theme is that we have moved from an era where more is more. Uh, more subscription services, more data, more advertising, more technology, to an era in which we are being forced to think about what we need in order to deliver on the service to our customers. And so if you do feel yourself becoming paralyzed by fear, go back to that original principle. What do you need to give your customers what they need from you? And that will help you pare back all of the extra stuff that you don't actually have to collect and monetize and deal with. And that's going to get you a long way towards meeting the needs of both the consumers and the regulators. Thank you, Melissa. I really enjoyed our conversation today. It was really great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's prediction season. Download Forrester's 2018 predictions guide at for.com slash predictions. That's F-O-R-R.com slash predictions. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.